Chapter 32, Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Stories of the War in the South. Although apparently defeated in almost every battle, General Greene had, by his constant efforts, so weakened the British that practically he was now in control of almost all of South Carolina and Georgia, except Charleston and Savannah, and there he kept the Redcoats bottled up until the end of the war. The character of the struggle, the loyalty and sufferings of the people during this time, may perhaps best be understood by relating certain incidents recorded by some of the earlier writers. In Johnston's Traditions and Reminiscences of the American Revolution, the well-known story of Marion's invitation to a British officer to dine with him, and then offering to his guest some roasted sweet potatoes, is thus told by one who heard it soon after the occurrence. Quote, the young Englishman had first been invited by Marion's aides to dine with them, and had accepted the invitation. But being also invited by the general, he requested an excuse from the aides, among whom he would probably have fared better. The general, with his usual tact, had perceived that the young man was sensitive and concluded to try him by a ruse. The potatoes were served up as represented by all, those who have told the story, but when the general had peeled his potatoes, he did not throw away the skins as others usually do, but left them on one side of his plate. They had been roasted and brought on by Oscar, his foster brother, who was therefore from infancy always called Buddy, brother, by the general when he spoke to him. After dinner the general said, Buddy, bring us something to drink, and Oscar brought a gourd full of water, of which the officer was first invited to drink. The general then drank heartily from the same gourd. He then called Oscar to bring up his horse Roger, and Roger was led up to his master, who handed to him the potato skins, all of which were eaten by the horse from his master's hand. Not one of them was lost. The young officer, whose name I do not recollect to have heard, returned on the completion of his mission deeply impressed by the scene he had witnessed. He afterward resigned his commission with a determination never again to draw his sword against men who so bravely and conscientiously opposed his king and government. Suffering privations and wants of every kind, without pay, clothing, forage, arms, or ammunition, compelled to reside in sickly swamps without tents to shelter them, with nothing to drink but water, nothing to eat but roots, and feeding their horses on the skins, the refuse of this homely and scanty fare. After this adventure, General Marion obtained a very fine-blooded horse by defeating a party of Tories commanded by Captain John Ball. This fine animal was called Ball thenceforward after his late owner. At one time, when the British were in possession of Georgetown, South Carolina, the immediate vicinity was kept in a constant state of alarm by Swamp Fox, the name by which the Tories called the hated Marion. On one occasion, one of Marion's men left some provisions with a woman and her daughter, who were known to be friends of the rebel cause. Immediately after the departure of Marion's man, a party of British stopped at the house made a search, and discovered the hidden supplies. 
they charged upon the mother the fact of their being designed for the rebel army. She prevaricated, and the officer in command insisted that she should have them hauled to the river and shipped to Charleston. The old lady said she would have them hauled as directed, but could not be responsible for them after they had left her premises, that some of Marion's men were constantly scouting about there, and would watch and seize them as soon as they should be removed. Taking advantage of this hint, the British scouts resolved to carry off with them all that they could bear away, and ordered her to have the remainder shipped immediately. With this intent, they proceeded to examine the supplies. The daughter watched them, determined, if possible, to defeat their object. Retiring from the house a few minutes, she hastily returned and, in apparent alarm and agitation, exclaimed, Marion and his men are coming. The British beat a hasty retreat, and before nightfall the provisions were removed by a patriotic band to a place of greater security. Marion always enjoined upon his men, whenever they fell in with the enemy or heard of them, that they should obtain all possible information of their numbers, position, object, and destination. On one occasion one of his men, named Revenel, when absent from the camp, met a considerable British detachment, from which he escaped with difficulty, but had no time to observe their numbers or description. It was his duty to report, but what was he to say? He had escaped into the woods, but now determined that he would return toward their track, ascertain their strength, and follow them to their encampment. He accordingly rode through the woods until he reached the head of their line, then climbed into a tree, counted their numbers accurately as they marched past him, and when they encamped, he passed on and reported to his general. Unquote. Among the most active and daring of Marion's men were Robert Simmons and William Withers, two young men equally inconsiderate. They had been sent together on some confidential expedition, and while resting at noon for refreshment, Withers, a practiced shot, was examining the pistols to see if they were in prime condition for any emergency, while Simmons sat near him, absorbed in thought. Bob, said Withers, if you had not that bridge on your nose, you would be a likely young fellow. Do you think so, said Simmons? Withers, for want of something else to do, was pointing his pistol at different objects to steady his hand and practice the grasp, weight, and level of his favorite weapon. At last, as Simmons sat sideways to him, he was again attracted by the prominent bridge of his nose. Bob, said Withers, I think I can shoot off that ugly bump on your nose. Uh, said Simmons, shall I shoot? Shoot! And crack went the pistol. The ball could not have been better aimed. It struck the projecting bridge and demolished it forever, all of which shows that Marion's men were not only bold and reckless, but at times foolhardy as well. One of the deeds of the South Carolina Boers, as the Redcoats termed the farmer soldiers, was that of one of the men with Lieutenant Slocum, who was under the command of Colonel William Washington. He, with twelve others as bold as he, had been sent as scouts near the camp of Cornwallis. The lieutenant, when they came near the British camp, sent a man named McKean to spy out the land. McKean, on reaching the vicinity of Lord Cornwallis's post, concealed his horse in a thicket and advanced under cover of the woods to the skirts of the plantation. There he saw a square mile covered with the tents, baggage, 
and artillery of the best equipped and disciplined army which had ever visited America. The sight was one to impress the rude soldier, but as he looked he saw an officer come within range of his rifle. Without a thought of his own peril, the daring man raised his gun and fired, and the scarlet-clad officer fell to the ground. Instantly quitting his place of concealment, McKean ran for his horse, leapt upon his back, but had hardly started before he was aware that the British troopers were in swift pursuit. In the mad race across the sand hills, McKean held his own for a mile and a half, when the foremost of his pursuers fired at him, but missed. A second shot, however, brought his horse to the ground, and before the soldier could recover from his fall, two of the troopers dashed past him, each giving him a sword cut as he went. The third came up more leisurely, and passed his sword through his body near the shoulder, and was about to give the final coup de grace, when his own sword arm was almost severed, and he rolled to the ground near his enemy. The second dragoon, now returning, fell with his head and helmet cleft, and the third at once surrendered to those who had come to McKean's aid. The half-dead boar was carried to camp, where his wounds were dressed, and he afterward recovered. At this very time, Lieutenant Slocum's home had been invaded by Tarleton. He, with his legion, encamped on the plantation, and the leader had many a conversation with Mistress Slocum, who was intense in her patriotism. At the word of Tarleton, she prepared a dinner for him, and for some of his officers, but while they were eating, the sound of guns in the distance was heard, and the leader of the Redcoats demanded of Mrs. Slocum whether any part of Washington's army was in the vicinity or not. I presume, replied the lady, that it is known to you that the Marquis and Green are in this state, and you would not be surprised at a call from Lee or from your old friend Colonel Washington, who, although a perfect gentleman, it is said shook your hand, pointing to the scar left by Washington's saber, very rudely when you last met. The angry Tarleton ordered his troop to form, and commands were issued for the Tories to patrol the neighborhood. As soon as the intrepid woman heard this order, fearful for the safety of her husband, whom she knew to be near, she sent an old negro slave, ostensibly to a neighboring mill for meal, but really to warn her husband of his peril. The negro, delighted with the redcoats, lingered among the tents on the lawn, and when he turned to his duty was horrified to behold young Lieutenant Slocum and a few of his friends entering the place, all unaware of the presence of Tarleton's legion. A cry from the slave warned them of their danger, but it was too late to turn back, for already their retreat was cut off, so straight ahead they dashed through the garden, leaping the canal and into the woods beyond, followed by the shots and cries of the baffled redcoats. When the lieutenant at last approached his hiding place, he was horrified to discover a man hanging by the neck from a halter attached to the overhanging branch of a tree. Instantly cutting him down, he found him to be a Tory prisoner recently taken, so the cruelty was not confined to one side only. Lieutenant Slocum, with two hundred neighbors, followed the retiring redcoats and harassed them until they crossed the Roanoke. Perhaps this instance affords as good an insight into the character of the war as any could do. In the year 1777-78, Charleston was blockaded by various British cruisers. At one time, three of these were particularly troublesome. There was but one armed American vessel in port, 
and she was not more than a match for any one of the three British vessels. Alexander Gillen volunteered to go out against the three with this single vessel if the governor would sanction his attempt and supply him with a suitable number of marines in addition to the crew of the vessel. The proposal was accepted, and the marines were drafted from the regulars in the service of the state. Gillen disguised the vessel by means of tarpaulins and a change of rigging to look like a merchantman. He went to sea while the enemy were in sight, though they were at some distance from him and were somewhat scattered. In his assumed character, Gillen pretended to run away from the British cruisers and concealed all his men under the windward railings. One of the enemy pursued him and thus was placed at still greater distance from his comrades. When he came up with Gillen's vessel, he ran alongside with the greater confidence. Gillen then threw his grappling irons on board, and at the head of the marines boarded the British vessel, and captured her with very little loss on either side. Gillen then divided his prisoners between the two vessels, and secured them under the hatches. He also divided his officers and men between the two, and considered himself a match for the two remaining blockaders, and felt able and willing to fight them, if fighting should be necessary. Still, he proceeded in disguise. He kept the British flag flying on his prize and reversed the American on his own vessel, over which he hoisted a British flag to indicate that his had been captured and not the other. The two then made easy sail toward the British vessels. On coming up with the first, he ran alongside her comrade, which had just been captured, and surprised her by boarding without firing a gun. On coming up with the first, he ran alongside in her comrade, which had just been captured, and surprised her by boarding without firing a gun. The third blockader, seeing no fight and hearing no firing, suffered herself to be surrounded before she could suppose they were her enemy's vessels. But when their flags were, at a given signal, displayed in form, she found that escape was impossible and resistance useless. She therefore surrendered, and Gillen returned to Charleston in triumph with his prizes. The people dwelling upon a large plantation on the Catawba were startled one morning by the report brought by a country lad that a detachment of British light horse, with a long train of empty baggage wagons, was coming to seize provisions for Cornwallis. The women and children were quickly sent to the neighbors, while the men armed themselves and had hardly time in which to conceal themselves before the redcoats appeared. The British, finding the plantation apparently deserted, at once began to plunder and load their wagons. Twelve of the hardy Whigs by this time were assembled, and stationed by twos on the borders of the place, were angrily watching the redcoats and waiting for them to retire. In the doorway of the house, with a hand resting on each side of the casing, stood the leader laughingly watching the men as they plundered the place. Some of them had upset the beehives, and the angry little insects were driving men and horses all about the lane in confusion. The sight seemed to delight the leader, and he was laughing uproariously, as indeed were his followers, whose attention had also been drawn to the antics of their comrades. "'Boys, I can't stand this,' said one of the watching farmers in a low voice. "'I take the captain. Everyone choose his man and look to yourselves.' The sharp reports of the rifles rang out. The captain, nine of his men, and four of the horses fell dead or wounded. The bugle immediately sounded a recall, but by the time the dragoons had formed, a straggling fire from another place to which the farmers had run was heard. 
the swamps thickets and woods along the road to charlotte seemed to the redcoats to be filled with their concealed enemies and at last their hounds were let loose in pursuit followed by the redcoats the dogs took the trail but one of the hounds was killed as he tried to seize one of the men and his companions stopping to sniff at the body of their dead comrade howled and refused to go on with the chase by this time many of the neighbors had come to the aid of the few patriots some more of the dragoons were shot horses were killed and a scene of indescribable confusion was on every side at last the foragers cutting loose many of the horses of the baggage wagons made their way back to camp but the survivors declared there was not a bush on the road that did not conceal a rebel the family of martins in edgefield was remarkably conspicuous in the war there were seven brothers in this family and all took an active part and all survived save one who fell at the siege of augusta the women of the family were as brave and daring as the men understanding that important dispatches were to be sent up the country near them the wives of william and bartley martin dressed themselves in their husbands clothes took their muskets and compelled the courier when he appeared to surrender his letters which they at once sent on to general green who at the time was retreating from ninety six from the many incidents recorded by garden in his anecdotes of war the following selections will serve to illustrate the character of the struggle and the hardihood and bravery of the men and women in a pocket-book of sumter was found an accurate list of the houses he had burned and also a list of those he intended to destroy cornwallis writing at this time to tarleton declared i shall be glad to hear that sumter is in no condition to give us further trouble he certainly has been our greatest plague in this country in a letter dated august fourteenth seventeen eighty baron de cab writes to the chevalier de luzerne you may judge the virtues of our small army from the following fact we have for several days lived upon nothing but peaches and i have heard no complaint there has been no desertion strict orders were given the soldiers against pillaging on one occasion a soldier of the line was found with a turkey gobbler in his possession and when he was asked as to the manner in which he had obtained it said in gobbling this saucy bird so often called me tory 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 that i killed him to prevent further insult but said the inquiring officer you have a hen turkey also she does not gobble why was she brought oh and please your honor as an evidence she heard the insult and if she had not been smothered by her close confinement might have told how much i bore before i could persuade myself to do the rascal an injury the soldier kept the prizes at the battle of utah when marion's brigade was deploying in the face of the enemy captain g who commanded the front platoon was shot down and supposed to be mortally wounded the ball passed through the cock of the handsome hat he had recently procured tearing the crown very much and in its progress his head also he lay for a considerable time insensible the greater part of the day had passed without a favorable symptom when suddenly reviving his first inquiry was after his beaver when this was brought him by a friend at the same time lamenting on the condition of his head the captain exclaimed oh never think of the head time and the doctor will put it to rights but it grieves me to think that the rascals have ruined my hat forever when colonel lee informed mrs jacob mott that her beautiful home must be burned in order to compel the british garrison there to surrender she instantly replied the sacrifice of my property is nothing 
and I shall view its destruction with delight, if it shall in any way contribute to the good of my country. When the British had seized the place, they had first permitted Mrs. Mott and her family to remain, but when the patriotic band of Lee approached, they told her that she and her people must leave the place. Departing, they had taken with them a quiver filled with arrows, the former present of a slave. When Colonel Lee was seeking for means by which to set the house on fire and compel Major McPherson, the commander of the British, to surrender, Mrs. Mott herself brought forth this quiver. A burning arrow was soon fired upon the roof, which, as it blazed up at the same time when the six-pounders of Lee spoke, compelled the redcoats to surrender. So little Fort Mott fell into the hands of the patriots. At the Battle of Utah, after the British line had broken and the old buffs, a regiment that had boasted of extraordinary feats they were to perform, were running from the field, young Lieutenant Manning in the enthusiasm of the moment sprang forward in pursuit, directing the platoon which he commanded to follow him. He did not cast an eye behind him until he found himself near a large brick house into which the York volunteers commanded by Kruger were retiring. The British were on all sides of him, and not an American soldier nearer than 150 or 200 yards. Lieutenant Manning did not hesitate an instant, but springing at an officer who was near him, seized him by the collar and exclaimed, You are my prisoner. At the same time he wrestled the officer's sword from his grasp, dragging the man from the house, all the time keeping his prisoner in front of him, and so protecting himself from the heavy fire from the windows as he slowly moved backward to join his fellows. Lieutenant Manning afterward frequently related how that his huge prisoner, at the very moment when his captor naturally expected him to make a break for liberty, with great solemnity had said, I am Sir Harry Berry, Deputy Adjutant General of the British Army, Captain in the 52nd Regiment, Secretary of the Commandant at Charleston. Enough, enough, sir, said the lieutenant. You are just the very man I was looking for. Fear nothing for your life, for you shall screen me from danger and I will take special care of you. The incident has greater force when it is known that the young lieutenant was a small, slight man, who made up by his courage for what he lacked in stature. From Domestic History of the American Revolution and various other reliable sources, the following instances of the zeal and courage of the patriotic women are taken. About 200 men were commanded by Colonel Clark, hearing that a large body of Tories were seizing horses for Ferguson, determined to rout them. On their way they stopped for refreshment at the house of Captain Dillard, who was with them, and after having been fed on milk and potatoes resumed their march, and at nightfall went into camp at Green Spring. That very evening Ferguson and a party of his men stopped at Dillard's and made inquiries concerning Clark and his band. Upon being informed that they had been gone a long time, they ordered Mrs. Dillard to prepare supper for them. As she passed back and forth from the kitchen, she heard enough of their conversation to make it clear that they knew where Clark's men were, and were planning to surprise them. She hastened in her preparations for the supper, and as soon as the officers had seated themselves at the table, she slipped out of the house, went to the stable, bridled a young horse, and started swiftly for Green Spring. All night long she rode, and about half an hour before daylight, approached the spot and was seen by the vedettes who conducted her at once to Colonel Clark, and her story was told. 
Her word came just in time, for hardly were the patriots under arms before the Tories were upon them. But the salute of the guns was more than a surprise, for in a brief time the attacking party had been driven off and scattered. The Liberty men were bold, but the women were no less bold. Emily Geiger was a young girl who also made a desperate and successful ride for the cause she loved. When Green was retreating from 96, he was very desirous of getting word to Sumter, but the intervening region was filled with Tories, and it was almost impossible to find a man to undertake the perilous ride. Emily, however, volunteered, and Green accepted her offer, and after receiving from him a letter, and also verbal instructions from Sumter, the young girl rode forth from the camp. On the first day she was not molested, but on the second she was seized and a woman was ordered to search her. Before the Tory matron came, Emily tore the letter into bits and swallowed them. As nothing suspicious was found upon her person, she was permitted to resume her journey, and after a long and circuitous ride, she arrived at Sumter's camp and delivered her message by word of mouth. And Sumter soon afterward joined Green's forces at Orangeburg, it is a satisfaction to know that Emily Geiger afterward married a rich planter and dwelt for many years on the shore of the Congaree. Nancy Hart was another bold woman. She was known as the War Woman, who dwelt near War Woman's Creek. Large, red-haired, cross-eyed, she apparently was in no fear of the Tories, whom she hated with a perfect hatred. Her husband and a few of his neighbors were hiding in the swamp near the house and a conch shell was used to give the signal in case of danger or of the need of the men at the house. One day a party of five Tories rode up to Nancy's home, and after making inquiries concerning a young rebel, whom the war woman boldly declared she had helped escape, they dismounted, and after killing the one turkey left on the place, ordered her to cook it for them. Demurring at first, she afterward consented, and she and her little daughter waited upon the visitors, who seated themselves at the table. While they were busy at their feast, Nancy bade her little girl to go down to the spring and give the signal with the conch shell that the presence of her husband and his neighbors was required at the house. Meanwhile, as she waited upon her guests, she contrived to pull out some of the pine chinking between the logs of which the house was built, and through the opening thus succeeded in dropping three of the guns which the Tories had leaned against the wall while they themselves were busy with the turkey and the jug which Nancy had brought up from the cellar at their command. As the bold woman took the fourth gun and tried to drop it also out between the logs, her actions were seen and the angry Tories started from their seats. Quickly bringing the gun to her shoulder, Nancy ordered them not to advance a step nearer, and, as has been said, the war woman being not only large and strong, but also cross-eyed as well, every man held back, as he was positive she was aiming directly at him. Even the strong nerves of Nancy Hart could not have endured the strain long, but relief came when suddenly the sound of guns was heard, the room was filled with smoke, and three of the Tories fell dead as Hart and his neighbors dashed into the place. The remaining two Tories were taken out into the yard and hanged from the branch of a tall tree. What terrible times they were! The hand of neighbor was raised against his neighbor, and with the passing days the hatred became more and more intense. No man, no house was safe. But through it all, the women tilled the fields, cared for the wounded, oft-times defended themselves against the Tories and Redcoats, 
not that they were always successful, boldly made their way to the British pens in which husband, son, or brother was confined, carried word to the scattered bands of Sumter or Marion of the doings of the enemy, and in every way kept up the courage of those who were striving to protect themselves from the invading foes. The history of the war in the South is almost like some romance, but the terrible suffering and peril of the times doubtless did not seem to be very romantic to the desperate and struggling people. End of chapter 32